Hi, this is Rodney Lim, owner and clinical supervisor of Advanced Counseling and Communicating Love. The purpose of my podcast channel is to help you progress, overcome challenges, and succeed in those things you'd like to accomplish or learn. Over the last 27 years in practice, as a licensed clinical counselor and marriage and family therapist, I have worked with a variety of clients with many struggles, but I have found there are three main areas that people can use a little help in. Mental health, including anxiety and depression, marriage and relationships, and pornography challenges and other things that cause difficulties in relationships. Each week, I will tackle one of these areas. So whatever you are struggling with, you can listen to that specific podcast area. I hope to give you real tools and suggestions that work. I hope to educate you on how to support loved ones and how to work on relationships. And most of all, I hope this is informative and helpful to you. Be sure to check out my website, communicatinglove.com, where you will find lots of great resources. You can also join me for a live webinar every Thursday if you'd like to ask questions. Go to my website, communicatinglove.com, for all the information. Now, on to the good stuff. Welcome to the podcast for Communicating Love in Marriage. I'm excited today. I'm going through some notes and I'll be sharing different things I've collected through the years, the last probably 30 years of things that I thought, oh, one day I'm going to be sharing this with couples. The thing I'm going to share today is to introduce to you this, the divorce bug. And so what we're talking about is getting the bugs out of your marriage today. And so this is a pamphlet was published in 1979 by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I actually picked this up when I lived in Canada, in Nova Scotia. It's something that I had as something to share at that time, years ago. So the divorce bug. So we'll talk about some things that can cause problems in a marriage or any relationship. I'd like to introduce today Natalie. She works at my office. She's an intern and be, she's a great marriage counselor and can help with things there. So if you want to introduce yourself really quick. Yeah, I'm Natalie. I've been uh, interning at Communicating Love since October, so a little while now. And I have met with some couples. It's been a really fun journey and experience um, learning from them and, and learning with them. But also in my schooling as I'm on a marriage and family track. So I've been gathering some interventions and some things that have been helpful along the way. So it's been a fun journey. All right. So... Um Getting the bugs out of your marriage. It's a list of known symptoms and secret cures from the divorce bug himself. I have a letter written from the divorce bug. It says, hello, I am the divorce bug. I'm highly contagious and terribly overworked. It seems that no marriage is completely immune to me. So in an attempt to reduce my workload, I've developed this brochure on divorce. Contained herein are descriptions of my most potent viruses and divorce fluenzas, which have successfully started the thousands of unsuspecting married couples on the road to divorce. I've also included top secret treatments, which have been developed by our Cure Prevention Research Lab. Although the release of these findings is unprecedented, I believe the general public should be educated. 
if not for their sake, then for my own sanity. So please study this information carefully and try some of the treatments. Then maybe my wife and I will be able to take that Caribbean cruise we've been planning for the past five years. That's a letter from the divorce bug. He's overworked. And so he wants a break to go on his own vacation. He's been doing his job very good, but more than he wants to anymore. All right, so this first one we're gonna talk about is verbal terminosis. What is verbal terminosis? It's a termination of open and honest communication between you and your spouse. Caution, highly contagious, should be treated at first sign of infection. The symptoms are a tendency to watch for double meaning in your spouse's statements. You and your spouse both complain of being misunderstood. Increasing difficulty in verbally expressing your feelings. Loss of intimate gestures, eye contact, and private jokes only the two of you can understand. Increasing difficulty in finding something to discuss with your spouse. So that's a symptom of verbal terminosis. In the advanced stages of this, difficulty in having a conversation which doesn't end in an argument. The next one is long silences. And another, cannot relax with your spouse. Conversation is still stilted and repetitive. Those are the advanced stages. So here is a treatment. And Natalie, if you have other things you add in to treatment for this, then chip in. Okay, so I have uh, four here and then I'll be adding some of my own. So the treatment is have two one hour discussions per week without interruptions. That's part of the challenge, maybe, sometimes, is without interruptions. Okay, I'll go through them, then I'll come back and comment more. Number two is avoid accusations or defensive statements. Three, allow equal uninterrupted expression of thoughts and feelings. And four, exercise understanding, acceptance, and empathy. So that's the treatment. All right, so I mentioned a little bit last week about safety. We have to have safety in a relationship before we can have healthy, appropriate, open, good communication. So that's part of the treatment is to create that safety. So uh, when it says having uh, two one-hour discussions per week. So if you have, when things are in transition, it's, it's time to increase the rate of intense discussions. So you want to create a safety around being able to do that. And just by having a time set aside to do that, uninterrupted time, is what's important to be able to do that. So avoid accusations or defensive statements. How do we avoid accusations? So a lot of times couples, we get in the habit, some, some couples, not we all, some couples that are inclined to call names, it becomes verbal abusive, and we want to avoid that, that verbal terminosis. So there's different games that we can play that can make it more fun to make those changes and create safety. For example, one game that I often set up with couples is to make a list of certain words that are used often as hurting words and to make a list of those. Of course, any cuss words or 
words that are used to demean someone, we want to eliminate those out of the relationship. So if there's particular ones that are trigger words, and it doesn't have to even make sense or be offensive to others, the question is, is it offensive to your spouse? Again, it's, it's what's between you and your spouse that is. So you want to identify that. So the game would be to put that on a list of non-usable words. And so we've got one couple right now. They have a list of words. And so whatever is on the list that they've agreed upon that's on that list, if they say that word or that phrase, then they have to put in a dollar to the kitty jar that is on the kitchen counter. And that jar is going towards savings for their next vacation. And so hopefully by the time they get on their next vacation, all those words are eliminated. So the vacation will be a lot more fun. That's one way, you know, just it raises awareness, that mindfulness, that's important to make changes. So we have to desire the change and pay attention to making that change to make it work. That's one example of a fun way of making change to eliminate certain words. And another part, you know, it mentioned silence, long silences. So it's good to have an agreement that when you need a timeout, that it's agreed upon how long that actually lasts. Of course, the goal in the timeout is to calm yourself down and come back prepared to talk through whatever the issue is and re-strategize. If you just take off and you don't say anything, then the other person is left there hanging, wondering when they're coming back, when are we going to get it resolved? It's, it's not very comfortable. But knowing, okay, I will be back in 30 minutes or 15 minutes, or I'll be back in one hour, whatever the time frame is that you've agreed upon for timeouts, then that makes that silence uh, a supporting thing and helpful thing rather than a hurtful thing. If you just take off and disappear, which oftentimes with couples, when we start, until we get this figured out, there's been a lot of hurt where someone will take off. I'm just going to go for a drive. Well, they don't know if they're going to be gone for a half hour or an hour or two hours. And of course, and well, not of course, but it's not uncommon in some and many instances where someone will take off for three or four hours or way into the night. And some couples who have more challenging problems, they might take off for three days and disappear and not even know where the partner is for three days before they show up again. And that's very severe and very, well, it's just not a healthy relationship when that is needed. Okay, so that's verbal terminosis. Any comments that trigger your mind, Natalie, or any other questions? I like how you brought up the timeout and just making sure that you come back to connect, that you agree upon that. Another idea that came to mind was boundaries in a relationship. So setting up some ground rules of things like that. So for timeouts, just having an idea of what that looks like. And then also just what words, like you said. Also, some couples like to use code words to say, okay, this is a subject in which, you know, I'm not ready for right now. So here's my code word. I'm going to give that out. And then I'll, we'll come back to it at a later time. So that can also be helpful. So very similar to what you said. Just yeah, that's great. A few little things. Yeah, code words are great. So yeah, yeah, I had one. Uh, 
one couple I worked with, they do well most of the time, but sometimes when they go to a different activity, it has different triggers for the relationship. So they came up with some code words to where, hey, time out. And so uh, talking about code words is that it's already understood when that word is said, there's a whole paragraph of understanding and that makes it easier to work as a team rather than have to figure it out in public. If you're in public, you can just say the code word and that's very helpful to have that understanding. Along with that, a lot of times verbal things can be triggering. So not just a code word, but a nonverbal signal is very effective. One signal that my wife and I have when we are visiting others at times, and when we're visiting, and one of us feels like, well, I'm done visiting, I'd like to go home now, or I'm ready to leave, the way we'll signal that is just nonchalantly just kind of tap our wrist like we're tapping our watch. I don't wear a watch anymore, but it's, that's a nonverbal signal. And nothing has to be said, and nobody else may even know what that means. I just kind of like itching, just kind of just nonchalantly tapping, and that is my signal to her or her to me, hey, I'm ready to go. And if I give the tap back, or she gives the tap, if it's responded, that means I'm ready too. Uh, I can go as soon as we can get this conversation ended without being rude. We're both ready to leave. But if the person um, doesn't give the signal back, then they're not quite ready. So that's the person giving the signal then needs to be patient. And so sometimes we'll stay longer and sometimes we'll both then close out the relationship. And that gives respect to not cut it short if the other person wanted to stay longer or not. So anyway, so that's a, a nice nonverbal signal. Other nonverbal signals, I've had couples agree on like when the discussion gets, when they're in the discussion, rather than just running away to take a timeout, it's how to politely take a timeout. And so with previous agreement, it's having what that signal is. In sports, timeout, that's a common signal. So sometimes with couples, I have that. Other couples, it's like, I feel like it's a hand on the head. It's very obvious. Uh, it's like, okay, anything more you're saying feels like you're beating me on the head verbally. And so it's like, okay, I need you to stop. Or just say, you know, some go with that signal, stop. Or if it's one in public, it's more a uh, non subtle one like rubbing the ear or something like that just as a team comes up with game plans like on a basketball or a football team there are strategies already pre-planned so all the the person in charge or the person that gives a signal all they have to do is say a code word or a signal and then everybody on the teams knows what the plan is we had touching parenting. We had an agreement with our daughter as a teenage daughter that when she's out and about with her peers, sometimes, you know, peer pressure is, oh, we're here and we want to go to this other place. So if our daughter asked us this way, we would say no. 
if she asks us a different way, then we might say yes. Okay, and so what we had set up with her, a code phrase, was that when she called and asked, and she would say, my friends want me to go over to here. So if that question was asked in that way, then we would say, no, we want you to come home. Because our daughter is saying, my friends want me to, which means she's not including herself, which means she really doesn't want to, but she doesn't want to be confrontive or to disappoint her friends. She just wants to be able to gracefully leave her friends and come home at that time. So when she asks in the presence, my friends want me to go here, so then we would say no. If she says, I want to go with my friends to go get a milkshake or to go to get pizza or to go to this other person's house, then we would consider whether or not we were okay with that. And oftentimes, just by her checking in and asking, then she would have permission because that way we kept track of where she was. So we could often say yes, but if we needed her to come home, then obviously we'd say no and it's time to come home. And so that was a great way to gracefully communicate in public, uh, having that understanding. Okay, so lots of good discussion triggers on that. So the next one I want to talk about is lacto-affectionitis. So it's a lack of affection between you and your spouse. The symptoms, you must always have a special occasion to give your spouse a gift. And others, you have not sincerely said, I love you in at least 24 hours. You seldom kiss your spouse hello or goodbye in public or private. There is a decreasing use of verbal endearments between you and your spouse. Another symptom is you seldom hold your spouse's hand or display any similar physical affection in public. So those are symptoms of lacto-affectionitis. They need more affection. The advanced stages. You have never been caught kissing your spouse by your children. And another is you consider romance unrealistic. So that's advanced stages of not having enough affection in your relationship. The treatment. Make one phone call per day, or we could add text to that today to your spouse, just to talk, not because you had a purpose other than to check in and say hi. Another treatment, experience one date per week. That's a very important one. So the Gottmans, the gurus of research, say that the best of the best marriages, they go on a date every week. Taking that time together is very important. When we spend that time together, then we enjoy, can enjoy each other. Another treatment is to evenly apply verbal endearments and physical affection. The next is to exercise continuous use of the words, I love you. Plan to spend more meaningful moments together. So you need to spend time with your spouse. Take some time. Going on a date every week is great. I can tell on myself on a few stories here. So... When it talks about saying hello and goodbye, leaving the house. So there was my habit. Well, when I came home from work, I would come home. And if my wife was there in my path, I would say hello. I'd even give her a hug and kiss, which was great. And that was fine. But if she were 
out in the garden or she was upstairs or somewhere else in the house and I didn't see her when I came home and I had on my mind, oh, I have this task or this project I wanted to get busy with. Sometimes I would come home and go straight to that and she wouldn't even know I'm home. And sometimes I'd be home for one to two hours before she even knew I was home. And that bothered her as she had shared a few times and so <clears throat> i was tried to make more of a point to let her know i'm home i did better but not perfect and sometimes again when i would leave home if she were in my path i would say i'm going to work now or i'm leaving the house or if if it's like a saturday i'm working in the garage and i need to run to the store to get something i would just go and i might be gone an hour and before I come back and sometimes she'd be looking for me and said, well, where are you? And so that was kind of annoying to her. So after we had a very long talk one day and discussed different things that we could do for each other that would help us each feel better about the relationship, that was a commitment that I made to her and that she asked for uh, is that anytime I leave the house or come home, I will find her and let her know. And so I started doing that. And so anytime I came home, if she's the other end of the house or outside someplace, I would go look for her, find her, give her a hug and kiss and say, hey, I'm home. How's your day? Just that one or two minute check-in. And then it's okay, I've got plans. I'm going to go work on this other thing. And life was good. Well, after I did that for three weeks, she came back after three weeks of me doing that and said, I can't, I can't really explain understanding why, but I just wanted to share with you that since you've been doing that, I have felt safer. I feel like I'm a higher priority in your life, like I'm number one in your life, and I feel more love from you all the time to know when you leave the house and when you come home. And for 25 years, that was a complaint sometimes that she felt like I didn't always have her safety in mind. Like when I went to bed, I wouldn't lock the front door because growing up, that wasn't an issue where I grew up in the country. We never locked our doors. Of course, society's changed. I was more a country boy. My wife was more of a city girl. And so that was important to her. And so when I started locking the door, that was helpful, but giving her the hug and kiss was actually even a greater impact on her that I was looking out for her safety and well-being. And it wasn't totally related in my mind, but emotionally, it helped a lot. As little as and simple as that was, it improved probably our, in a sense, the connection that we felt with each other, it doubled and tripled that. And that's after 25 years of marriage, doing that helped a lot. So, lacto-affectionitis. I had a thought, Rob, yeah. when you were talking, it triggered something. I don't know if you talked on it last week, but the five love languages, have you gotten into that? I haven't gotten into that, but you can go ahead and give a primer. All right, I'll just share a piece of it. So there's a book on it. It's called The Five Love Languages. Kind of like you expressed with your wife that she has a specific way in which she feels loved and cared for. 
there are these five different ways in these categories in which most people fit into. And so I'll just briefly share what those are. Words of affirmation. So being able to be told things like, I love you, I care about you, you're beautiful, you know, whatever those things might be. And there's the physical touch, the hugs, the kisses, those kinds of things. Receiving gifts. So some people really feel loved when they're, they get gifts from their significant other. Quality time. Just spending time together, like going on dates. And then acts of service. Some people feel really loved when their spouse does the dishes or the laundry for them. So those are just some ideas. Great. Okay, so the author is Gary Chapman. I want to give credit where credit's due there. Gary Chapman, The Five Love Languages. That's great. So that's part of tuning into what our partner wants, giving them the affection that they want and how they want. So that's helpful. And more advanced understanding is to get really specific because sometimes if I came up behind my wife and grabbed her, she might not have liked that. But if I touched her on the shoulders first and then grabbed her, that made a lot of difference for her. It just helped her feel more prepared for the grab. And then it was welcomed as a hug, not as someone trying to wrestle her. You know, she grew up with some brothers that would come up and grab her and might tackle her. You know, grown up as siblings, we get into a lot of things. So it's just paying attention that little cues like that can make a difference. All right, rolling along here. Next one is called perfectomania. Okay, perfectomania. It's unrealistic expectations for a perfect marriage and or a perfect spouse. So we set ourselves up for failure when we expect perfection. Okay, the symptoms of perfectomania. Symptom one, you or your spouse have a tendency to ignore problems affecting your marriage. Two, you expect your spouse to look perfect at all times. Three, you or your spouse expect every moment to be romantic. Four, you expect your spouse to always be in a good mood. And the next, you have a feeling your spouse is not giving enough in the relationship. So that's perfectomania. The advanced stages of that problem. You cannot cope with misunderstanding or disagreement with your spouse. Next is you experience increasing disenchantment with your spouse and your marriage. You know you're in the advanced stages if your mind starts obsessing about what things are not good enough in the marriage. I mean, we have ideas and things that we need to talk about and work on, but if you begin to be working and obsessing and ruminating on that, that becomes a problem. So what is the treatment for perfectomania? Number one, plan and have one. Two or more discussions with your spouse as required. Apply honesty as you compare your personal expectations with your actual marriage. Allow equal expression of thoughts and feelings. And the fourth, exercise realism and an open mind as you and your spouse consider ways to make marriage more satisfying, being realistic. All right, so... The reality of that, you know, for years I was thinking in marriage that maybe there's like 25% of things that never change with our spouse and 75% of things that as we learn and grow together, we can change that. We can change each other. 
we can become a really good team that way. Two years ago, after 25 years of marriage counseling and 30 years of marriage, what I learned from the Gottmans was that in their studies with over 500 couples is that 69% of the issues with our spouse will never go away, which was a way higher percentage. And so the whole goal in the relationship is to focus on the 31% and focus on and expand that. And the things that aren't how we want them to be, it's learning to appreciate, tolerate in a loving way, and help with that. So the things that don't change in a relationship, it's unrealistic for our partners to change. We can expect and work on strategies to make it easier to live together on certain things. So let's see, Natalie, what's an expectation that you have seen with couples that does not change or will never change, really? That's a really good question. I feel like sometimes it can be based on values. So some people have different values regarding how they want to raise their children or various things, how they spend their time together and when they go on dates, something as simple as that. Some of those things don't change, but you learn to compromise on some of those. Yeah, yeah. That's, That's the first thing that came to mind. Great, thanks. So that reminds me of a couple, and this is not an uncommon thing really with a lot of couples, is that with one of the spouses is always late. One of them always wanting to be early. There's often the opposites with a lot of couples. And so one couple, you know, like the spouse, there was nothing. It wouldn't matter. The spouse was always late, consistently 15 minutes late to everything. Now, it's a much deeper issue if some person really wants to change that. And in It can be changed, but that's a common thing that is never changed a whole life for someone that they're just in their mind. They don't like to be on time to things and they like to be late. And there's a lot of psychological reasons why they might be, which would be another discussion. But as a rule, if you have a spouse that's always wants to be early or is always late, then you have to negotiate how to do that with one couple. One of the individuals liked to be to church like 20 minutes to half hour early so they could socialize and visit and see people coming in while the spouse liked the opposite, like to just come in and sit down and do the sermon and then leave, not do the socializing. And so the compromise they came up with is they just, drove separately to church. So one actually went there early, socialized, and then saved a seat, which was great for the person coming late. They always had a seat. They didn't have to just fumble around to find a a place. So that was a win-win where it was saved for them. So that's one example. It's understanding that we have different challenges with, with our spouse. Everyone has challenges. It's just how we deal with them that makes the difference. Well, another often difficulty in with couples is that one person is a night owl and the other person is an early bird. And that becomes a difficult 
but that's probably something that will not change. Nat, it, well, it's not a natural thing for one or the other to get on the other person's schedule. And so a lot of strategy is to meet at lunch, to do things in the middle of the day together. Well, the, the early riser can have quiet time in the morning, and then night owl can have quiet time at night. And so either you have time in the middle of the day to do that, or what I've done with uh, other couples where they don't have time in the day is to take turns. Like one week, the one that is the early bird will stay up an hour later, so they have some time together, and then the next week, the night owl will come to bed an hour earlier. Anyway, taking turns on each other's schedule. So that helps with that. Okay, so don't expect perfectionism. I remember the story about a man who had been married for over 50 years. And one of the things that always, always bugged him was that his wife, when she wore her slippers walking down the hall, she wouldn't pick her feet up. She'd always drag those slippers, dragging down the hallway. And it was always an annoyance for him. And, and he just was annoyed by that. And she had passed away. And he was remembering then in his remembering how much he missed her slippers dragging down the hallway. And it's just uh, when someone is out of our life, we often miss those things that were most annoying to us. And so the goal is to, when it comes to for perfectionism, rather than focusing on what's wrong, is focusing on what's right. And the way we do that is by expressing appreciation, expressing the things that are right. And if you're in repair mode, it's really good to consciously share three appreciations every day. And the negative stuff, what I like to share with couples is to write that down, wait 24 hours. If it's still an issue, then it goes on a list that you deal with once a week. You have a time set aside to talk about the difficult things just once a week. So a person doesn't have to be on guard. Are they going to be negative? Are they going to say something I'm wrong again about all the time? So when we practice, oh, hey, I'm, I appreciate this, I appreciate that, then that's a lot easier to respond to that. Okay, we'll move on to the next one. All right. So the next one is companion minus us. Deficiency in time spent with your spouse. The symptoms. You are usually too busy to sit down and talk with your spouse. Two, you are not aware of the current interests of your spouse. Three, the two of you have not gone out on a date in at least a month. Four, you are only together when you are with children, family, or friends. Five, you only participate together in activities which involve family management and or problems. The advanced stages of companion minuses is you and your spouse have not had one half hour of uninterrupted companionship in two weeks. And the other final is you have not seen your spouse during waking hours in over a week. So that's a tough schedule. And actually that happens sometimes. I had one couple, they were, one was on night shift, one was on the day shift. 
and sometimes that well basically they only saw each other on the weekends and that made it real difficult and so we negotiated being able to do more connection and to leave different messages and notes to each other to still to be able to express uh, fondness and admiration even when they didn't have talk actually I have a new app that would help with that it's called Marco Polo I think that's a real popular one right now <laughs> you can video a message and then it's like texting but they can watch it at their convenience so it's a great way to send messages to your spouse all right so the treatment is conduct one planning session per week with your spouse to systematically schedule the time you will spend together so that's a thing that my wife and I try to do every Sunday evening is to plan our week's schedule so we know when we're going to be out and about and when we're going to be around the other is schedule at least one date per week and no children are allowed and then I always also say that when you go on a date it's great to go with other couples at times but if it's every date that that gets to be too much. My recommendation is if you like to go with other couples a lot of the time, that you reserve at least a fourth of the time just the two of you going out, one out of four dates. If you get a lot of time home together, then one in four. If you don't see each other at home, I would recommend three out of four dates being just the two of you before you spend all your time in, in party mode with others. So again, it's finding that balance. All right, next one is spouse modificosis. It's kind of like perfectimonia. Obsession with remaking your spouse. The symptoms, you feel uncomfortable with your spouse's appearance, habits, or personality. Two, you have a tendency to point out your spouse's faults. Three, you have not sincerely complimented your spouse recently within the last 24 to 48 hours. And four, you tend to avoid introducing your spouse to friends. The advanced stages of problems is increasing desire to make biting comments to and about your spouse. Also, as a result of your discomfort with your spouse, you spend less time together. And so if you're avoiding your spouse, you're trying to modify them too much or feel you're being modified too much. So you want to avoid that. So the treatment, privately determine why your spouse's traits are causing you irritation. Note, don't be too critical of your spouse's faults. It may have been those very faults that kept him or her from getting a better mate. <laughs> if you think your spouse is not good enough, just remember who they chose. You want to do better with yourself. Okay, consider how your behavior could be modified to bring out the best in your partner. And uh, that's bring out the best of your partner. That brings up another comment from the Gottmans is that it takes seven positive comments to neutralize one negative comment. But also in their studies of the best of the best couples, they found that there was between i think it was like 45 to 48 positive compliments per negative compliment shared in that relationship so that was something i need to work and strive to do better at but that's a lot of good compliments and 
doing that and having that habit makes it a very strong marriage. Okay, another treatment, uh, consider how your behavior could be modified to bring out the best in your partner. Discuss your problem with your spouse, evenly applying love and support. And mix well with suggestions of how you can work together to become your best selves. Again, that's part of strategizing, coming up with good plans. And then, of course, exercise patience, acceptance, and understanding. All right, moving on. We've got two left. Non-directional lycosis. Deficiency of goals in your marriage. The symptoms, lack of direction in daily activities. Your marriage seems to be going nowhere. Two, an increasing restless feeling between you and your spouse. Three, you have not discussed the future with your spouse in two months. Four, you experience an increasing desire to turn back the clock and have things as they were. Next, you sense a realization that you have not accomplished the goals you set when first married. And six, you and your spouse have not jointly set goals for your marriage. The advanced stages would be, you feel a sense of fear when you think about your children going out on their own and leaving you alone with your spouse. That reminds me, I had a couple, a woman came to me, she had been married 68 years, and she came in for some marriage tips because at 92, her husband had retired from the ranch, and he was now home underfoot. She wasn't used to that, and he wasn't used to that, and so they had to work out different strategies. He started bossing her around the kitchen like she was a ranch hand, and that didn't go over too well. So. We had three good sessions where we strategized ways for her to kindly redirect him and to strategize how they could redesign their relationship after over 60 years, 67 years or whatever it was of marriage. I have to do the math to remember, but it was more than most. Anyway, she was a cute old lady. So let's see. Another advanced stage is there is a feeling of failure and despondency between you and your spouse. So if you feel that, then it's, I would recommend getting some extra help. But in the meantime, a treatment is together set specific attainable goals for your marriage. Another is strive to have daily as well as long-term activities which will help you both achieve your goals. And three, Exercise consideration and mutual support. Caution. Do not overplan. This too can be hazardous to the health of your marriage. So you want to find a, a balance between making plans and enjoying those activities. All right. So later on, there will be another session that I'll share uh, the outline of what the Gottmans defined as sound house. It's all the different elements that are included in a healthy, thriving, long-term relationship. And that'll be a whole nother discussion. Okay, so the final one is budgetitis, an inability to accept your spouse's attitudes towards money. This is in the top three causes of divorce. Of course, this is from the divorce bug, right? So one of the most critical ones is the last one we'll just brush over very quickly because that can take longer discussion. 
And the symptoms as finances are primary topic of arguments. Two, a feeling your spouse is spending you into financial ruin. Three, tendency to surprise spouse with items such as a new car, boat, or other items. The advanced stages, tendency to spend money to get back at your spouse. Two, one spouse has complete control of the budget, forcing the other spouse to account for all money spent. And a treatment for that is plan and hold one or more yearly discussions on budget and financial priorities. And with that, I would add not just one or more yearly, I would say weekly. Harty Ecker was a uh, training workshop I went to over well, several years ago, and he was a millionaire, and one of his things was saying that he could predict, he could guess a couple's income just by asking a few questions. One of those questions was, how much time do you spend each week talking about finances? And he said that the most wealthy couples spend at least one hour every single week discussing, planning, and strategizing how they are using their finances. So, and he said it was highly correlated between how much time you spend with your spouse discussing finances and how wealthy you are or will be. All right, so the next treatment is evenly apply compromise. So a lot of times I work with couples in, in their budget planning is to have each of them an allotment. What's good for the goose is good for the ganter type of thing is to have equality in the relationship on how manage money is used. So depending on your budget, you can have $20, $20 or $50 or $100 or even $500 if you have that much. Kind of difficult with a pandemic going on right now with feeling like there's a whole lot of excess. So if you budget that, it's good to have some fun money that you don't have to account to your spouse with, whether it's $20 or $50. is recommended that every couple has some set aside for you to just enjoy without having to account for that to each other. Caution, if irritation breaks out during discussion, discontinue treatment until tempers cool down, then increase dosages of compromise and understanding and listening skills. So that's how you work through budgetitis. Thanks for your time and hope you enjoyed this. Have a great week and hope to see you next week. And invite your friends. That's what would be great. Thanks for listening today. I hope you find this information and tools helpful. Please subscribe to the podcast channel so you never miss an episode. And be sure to join us next week for more great information. And of course, don't forget to check out my website, communicatinglove.com for more information on my live webinar and other great resources and videos. Until next week, onward and upward.